The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. The first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're going to talk about transformative experiences with somebody who knows quite a bit about the subject, uh, Kate Goodman from uh, UC Denver and Works. Welcome to the show, Kate. Hi, Dave. Nice to be here. Well, it's great to it's great to have you here, and and I got to know a little bit about your work from your just terrific uh, dissertation you did a couple of years ago. But before we dive into that, you know, we like to get to know our guests a bit. And so, uh, Kate, you're a you're a prof, a scholar of education. But let's uh, go back in the time machine, or back to the log cabin, or wherever we need to go back. <laughs> and what were some of the early influences that put you on your current path? You know, I was thinking about this a bit, and, and I have to give a shout-out to an undergraduate professor I had named Rick Gilman at uh, Valparaiso University. Um, very early on as an undergrad, he involved me as a research assistant on a project where he was working with local K-12 math teachers to help mm. them keep up on um, latest uh, research understandings of how to teach math. And just watching him and his colleagues interact with these teachers, treat them as colleagues, treat them as, you know, sort of co-learners uh, on, the, on the adventure of being STEM educators of whatever level, um, that sort of stuck with me, even though it was a long journey from that point to the point I am now. Um, and if I had to point to another influence, I, I would go even further back in time and say that as a kid, I was a 4-H'er. Ah. Um, I, I was in 4-H for more than 10 years, um, and the way 4-H is structured with project-based learning yeah. and how each year you have to um, sort of declare goals that make you stretch beyond what you learned last year. So, uh, you know, I was only in some projects just a couple of years, like photography or electricity. I did a few projects, did them for two or three years, went on to the next thing. But some of them, like foods and nutrition, I did every single year. And, you know, by the time you've done that... Uh, you know, more than four or five years, you're really having to stretch and think about 
how those things influence other people and what do you make on a day-to-day basis to keep people healthy and, and to make interesting and good tasting but also nutritious foods. Um, and, and 4-H pushed me as a leader as well to how do I communicate what I've learned to other people. You, you don't get, just get to learn something and go on. You're supposed to demonstrate what you've learned. Um, and that really augmented a really strong academic upbringing that I had from my parents. So I, perhaps I've been a project-based learning proponent from the get-go, and I just didn't know it. And you mentioned that we share uh, 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 an Illinois connection through your parents. Uh, oh, definitely, that- yeah. Mom and Dad went to University of Illinois. Um, so did my, my sister, actually. Uh, so that's, that's a favorite campus of mine to gamble about on. It's a beautiful campus. And and also on the show, and I guess you know part of how I you made the mistake of citing a whole new engineer. So I found your I found your work um, <laughs> because you had cited it. And um, but uh, in that book, Mark Somerville and I talk about uh, what we called unleashing experiences, um, in which somehow you are trusted enough or confident enough to have the courage to go your own way, and I'm. And and maybe we already heard some of that in the experiences you already shared. But what experiences or individuals helped give you uh, the courage to go your own way at some time, some time or times in your life? Well, I I, I will say that 4-H has a lot of things built yep. into it that encourage teen yep. leadership. Um, yep. You know, teens run the meetings; the parents sit in the back. So it really is a youth-led organization in a lot of ways. I'd also have to point to point back to my Valpo experience. Um, I completed an undergraduate research project as uh, the summer between sophomore and junior year, um, yeah. largely on my own. I did have uh, again Professor Rick Gilman was my mentor, but um, I, there were a lot of sort of long hours in the library puzzling through some graph theory and trying to figure out what what I could make sense of things on my own, and uh, really gaining confidence to know that. You know, I wasn't trying to discover something that where the answer was already in the back of the book someplace. This was new stuff, and if I came up with it, great. And if I didn't, nobody else was going to. Um, yeah, so that that moment of knowing that it's really up to me if this thing is going to happen or not. Yeah, beautiful. So, um, it, and I was talking before about your dissertation. You you did your PhD at UC Boulder in the Atlas Institute. What's what's the Atlas Institute all about? Well, Atlas is actually an acronym. Um, a lot of people don't realize it because it gets used as a word so much. But Atlas is the Alliance for Technology, Learning, and Society. Uh, it's an institute within the College of Engineering at CU Boulder. It's. Um, uh, I jokingly call it a choose-your-own-adventure PhD program. Um, my own background is odd enough that I'm not sure where else I would have studied if I had tried to fit shoehorn my interest into one place. Um, what do you mean by odd? Well, uh, so my Bachelor's of Science is in Mathematics, but I had a second major in Languages and Literature. Uh, my Master's is a Master's of Professional Writing in, with an emphasis in Fiction. Yeah. Um, and... So when I went to look at graduate school, I knew that I wanted to. Um, I knew that I wanted to look how at learning, and I knew that I, I had a passion for how people learn engineering and math. Uh, but it wasn't clear to me where I could go to do that work. 
at Atlas, I was able to um, propose and have accepted a, a study plan that included about a third of my work in the College of Engineering itself, but a second third was in the School of Education, and the last third was in the Institute of Cognitive Science, uh, so that I earned uh, a certificate of CogSci along the way. Because um, I really was, le- I really am interested in learning from sort of the neuron up and the classroom down, uh, because there's a lot that goes on in between that influence, you know, on the individual level how your your brain is developing different pathways, but also. You know, we're very social creatures, and if you're going to understand learning, you have to look at a classroom and how students are interacting with each other, with the instructor, uh, yep. et cetera. Yeah. And and then after, so you, you did that work, and we're going to dive into your dissertation work. It's fascinating work, and... and um, and I was, and actually, I was as I was reading it, I'm going, "Wow, this is this is as nicely read a dis, uh, written a dissertation as I've <laughs> read in a long time." And I now I now I understand why, um, or at least part of the reason why. But um, uh, you and and now you're a, a faculty member at, and so the is it CU or UC uh, Denver? We tend to say CU so that we're disambiguated from the California system. Ah, got it. Okay, so yeah. all right. Well, Colorado, we we, exactly. we don't need any of those West Coast Californian type people. So anyways, Colorado, <laughs> uh, University of Colorado Denver and you're in uh, something called Inworks. What's what's that about? Yeah, so Inworks is a relatively new initiative at CU Denver. We are our own academic unit. Uh, that our job is to bring together faculty and students and even community members to work on hard human problems that matter. Yep. Um, we span both the downtown Denver campus with um, aspirations of expanding our work over to the Anschutz Medical Campus. And a lot of the classes we teach, um, well, to put it this way, we, they don't stack up to a major. They stack up to a minor for undergrads yep. or possibly a graduate or undergraduate certificate in human-centered design and innovation. Um, The idea being that we want to be an extremely interdisciplinary place. Uh, When I did my dissertation work, it was all with engineering classes, and when someone say, oh, that's an interdisciplinary class, they meant that the civil engineers and the chemical engineers were actually talking to each other. Sure. Um, (laughs) But when we say interdisciplinary, we mean I've got, you know, a chemist, a physicist, a music major, and an architect working on a project together. And that's just a very different ball game um, in terms yeah. of interdisciplinarity. Yeah. At the University of Michigan, my thesis advisor was John Holland, may rest in peace. And, and um, students of his always, when other people said interdisciplinary, we always winked at each other. You know, so when John said interdisciplinary, he meant the kind the you know, so it's, it's like, it's actually like the bad joke, you know, what did the economist, uh, designer, and engineer um, um, say to each other when they walked into the bar kind of thing? It's, it's, a, it's extreme, like a joke, kind of extreme, yeah, extreme <laughs> interdisciplinarity, and, and a, lot of, a lot of schools talk about interdisciplinary, but what they mean is what you said, it's kind of the, where very closely related departments yeah. actually can kind of coexist without internecine battles yes comment yeah okay so um all right so and and i and i was kind of um uh, admiring my the citations to a whole new engineer one day and i and i came across um the the title of your dissertation i looked at it and i said oh my god this is great um uh and and that dissertation uh 2015 dissertation is called the transformative 
experience in engineering education and and I think you started to tell the genesis of that work, but give us the give us the real lowdown. How did that how that work get developed and and uh, who were the people who shielded you from the forces of evil so that you could do the work? Well, it's it's kind of funny because I, I came into my my PhD work with a really open mind. Um, I knew that I was interested in in how we learn and. Uh, but I didn't have a lot of uh, firm ideas of what project I wanted to do. And so um, at one point I met Professor Jean Hertzberg, uh, who's a mechanical engineering professor and um, amazing fluid dynamicist at uh, CU Boulder. Um, And she had long uh, wanted to do a deeper dive on her teaching practice. She'd done some, some preliminary studies on her own classes but really needed an outside researcher to uh, continue that work. Yeah. Um, she is the creator of an amazing class called Flow Visualization. And if you Google the term Flow Visualization, uh, her class website is you know, nearly always the first or second hit yeah. um, because she's really pioneered this idea that there should be a class around this idea. And Flow Viz is simply the idea that you know, fluids are tough to understand. We need to sort of do things to capture them. Uh, you know, we add dyes to liquids, we add smoke to air to try to yeah. see things and understand them, and this is expanded into different photographic techniques and, and whatnot. And of so she course. actually teaches a class every year on um, how to do just that, and every student's job in the class is to take beautiful and scientifically useful images of fluid flows and then to write short papers about what they captured in terms of the physics of the, of the fluids that... Yeah captured. And she would get students writing back to her the next year, two years later, five years later after the class saying, I still look at the clouds every day and think about what they're doing. Or I can't help but look at how my milk is mixing in my coffee um, and think about, you know, what Reynolds number is happening in there. And, and this, these were unsolicited, uh, sort of interesting moments of of students interacting with the content in sort of odd ways. Um, and she always got these comments back from Flovis students, not from general fluid mechanics students. Of course, yeah. So the, the, the seminal question is, you know, really what is happening differently for these students? Um, the engineers who take Flovis have all passed fluid mechanics, um, so that's not a big difference. Um, and so the question became, you know, is it one of motivation? Is it one of aesthetics? Yeah. Uh, is it agency? They're getting a lot of choice in Flovis, and, yeah. and really sort of pulling those things apart a little bit, which I feel like I haven't finished doing. We only began really uh, understanding how those things are interacting for students um, to really get an idea of you know what what's special about that class. Can we replicate it in other classes? Uh, can we pull some of it into the required fluid mechanics class? Those kinds of of ideas were really the the, the kickoff for for my dissertation work. Yeah, nice and 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 I I enjoyed reading ab- about that and I I should say uh, full disclosure my civil engineering uh, undergraduate degree was in uh, fluid flow and hydraulics and uh, I taught open channel flow and I my first six years of teaching I taught in a mechanics department and taught taught the uh, the fluid mechanics class that people didn't like, right? Um, and not the not the flow viz, but I always um, 
but I always enjoyed getting wet and uh, and uh, the you know you watch the movies of visualization or you do some visualization of a of a jet or or whatever it didn't matter it was always fascinating Definitely. fascinating to me yeah so and and we're gonna we're gonna dive even deeper into this but um, you know so at at this level sometimes you go into work and you have ideas about what's gonna happen and and or not. And and then sometimes there are these cool upside surprises that we get, and I'm curious if there are one or two of those that really stick out that you want to talk about at this juncture. Oh, definitely. The biggest was this. I wanted to elicit from students these, these aha moments when they were noticing fluids outside of the classroom or the lab, and I wanted, I, I wanted to figure out how to ask that question without coming out and saying, do you notice fluids in your everyday life? Because uh, know, most of them would come back with is, yes, of course I do. Of course I do, yes, so, yes. Yeah, so yeah. I asked sort of cagey questions around that, and I didn't get a lot of interesting stories. Where I got the interesting stories is when I asked them, do you feel like an engineer? How did you know you were an engineer? And I, that is when I got the stories of, oh, I was noticing a column of steam coming off the power plant, and I, there must have been a temperature inversion because the column leveled off. Or uh, I was watching Boulder Creek one day, and this certain eddy was doing this thing, and I knew I was an engineer because I understood what it was doing. Oh, that's so interesting. So it's tied up. So the, you elicited the ways in which they were noticing the visualization through identity questions. Yes, I, I got to the best stories of, yes, I must be an engineer. Wow. Then I got a story about, and I noticed my tea bag diffusing into my hot water, or, you know, I was geeking out about this thing on a snowbank, and my friends were like, what's the big deal? And I said, well, you know what I mean? This yeah, is where that's they so went. awesome. Yeah. And, we, and we point to identity and belonging as the way to t- really tell a student is, is going to continue in engineering, finish the degree, continue in the profession. And that was completely unexpected but very welcome uh, insight uh, that came out of my interview data was that the expansion of perception like that related to their content area is directly connected to their sense of identity. Wow. Let's let's take a bit of a break. I want to I want to pursue that just a little bit, and then I want to dive a little deeper into your dissertation, the transformative experience in engineering education. How about that? Sounds great. This is Big Beacon Radio with our our special guest Kate Goodman from the University of Colorado Denver Inworks. And when we come back, we're going to dive a little bit more into this whole notion of transformative experiences. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio, and our second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation and facilitation to help transform your educational institution or organization. And uh, and also, this segment is also sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're, we're back... Um, from the break with Kate Goodman from the University of Colorado, Denver, uh, in works. And, and Kate, I, I just uh, love the point you made at the end of the segment, um, this notion of identity. And actually, I was, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about this, this story that I tell in Chapter 2 of A Whole New Engineer, going to Olin and being struck that that was actually that identity and and uh, and. Uh, kind of identifying engineering phenomena as cool was sort of a telltale of whether someone had really embraced um, their engineeringness comment. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but so let's dig into, uh, I, just, there were so many good points in, in your uh, dissertation. So the, um, so the, it, early you say the central question of the work is how can we promote a transformative experience um, and and engineering education more generally. And 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 uh, I think you've already touched on it, but why? In what ways, or why is this important? Well, you know, when you dig into education research lit, there often is this question of transfer. Can we get students to move what they've learned in a classroom to another context? Yep. Um, and I don't like the word transfer because it sounds like it's with something we can put in a box and hand to the students and they can move it around. Um, I'd rather talk about activating resources or, you know, um, helping them recognize the context in which different skills they have are applicable. Um, and, and really, the transformative experience is, is part and parcel of them having sort of an expanded perception of where what their learning is applied or, or relevant. And without that moment of expanding their perception, 
um, they're, they're going to leave what they learn in a box in the classroom um, behind yeah. them as they move on with life. Yeah, and I guess you know it's it's one of those. It's I think that transfer or that movement from what you've learned into the world is a uh, is that a riding the bicycle kind of skill. Once you learn it in in a in a domain, it you you're better at it in other domains. I think there is some crossover, but I think we all fee- end up feeling shy in our new whatever our new area is. And we need encouragement. We need um, a coach sometimes. Sometimes yeah. we need a colleague. Uh, and we know that, especially as we become teenagers and, and young adults, that our peers are far more influential than our, uh, our parents at first and, and perhaps our teachers later. And so part of why I think collaborative project-based learning is so important is because we get to see that modeled in you know, slightly older students or just other colleagues. Um, the ways we can take risks, the ways we can be sort of humble about our attempts, we, the ways we can fail fast and learn from our mistakes. Um, those are practices we don't encourage in um, sort of standard education. It's sort of a one and done and you get graded and you go on with life. Yep. And that's not really how the work environment is. Yeah. And so, and, you know, and, and, and you're, you draw on lots of, I actually, one of the things I love about your work is and you you almost apologize for it, but there were lots of pieces, but it seemed to me that you needed lots of pieces of the educational literature to kind of move ahead. But a central piece was uh, Dewey's work on experiential learning and, and, um, and you seem to start there. So in that sense, what is, how, what is a transformative experience? We're using the term, but we haven't really talked about what it is. Yeah, let's, the, the, when I use it, I'm really building on the work of uh, science education researcher Kevin Pugh. And okay. Kevin works mostly in um, K-12 education. Okay. Uh, he's branching into to some higher ed stuff, but um, most of what I reference is his sort of, you know, he's teaching fifth his. graders earth sciences and, you know, when he was noticing things like a little girl would come back in from recess and she'd collected all these rocks because she now knew their stories. Or a boy would come back from, you know, they'd been learning about Newton's three laws and he would come back from, you know, overnight at home having watched some sort of car crash on TV and he would understand that car crash now in terms of the three laws of motion. Hmm. And he was, he, he's like, there, there's, there's got to be something, there's something else going on for these kids that isn't happening for some of my other students. What is it? And he said, well, there's these three hallmarks of an experience happening here. Um, the first is that they're motivated to use whatever it is they're learning, whether it's a knowledge, skills, abilities, outside the classroom without a, a, an assignment prompting them to go do it. Yep. So motivated use. Um, the second is expanded perception. They're seeing the content. They're, they have a new lens with which to view the world. And, it, and the final one, and this is sort of the more, most important one to me, um, is what Pew would call experiential value. That is, they find meaning uh, and value in the experience of using or seeing the world through that new content. And I prefer, actually, to term this affective value because I think it's got an emotional component. I believe that it's, you know, we, we, are, we, we find joy or fascination or it's not emotionally neutral. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, we can be sort of... You know, if you, maybe you're learning how diseases are transmitted and you can actually be horrified, but it's, it's still an emotionally driven uh, reaction to what you're now able to do or see in the world. Um, and, and Pew connects this to Dewey in an interesting way. John Dewey, you know, obviously taught 
that education needed to be very experiential. We need to help students connect it back to prior experiences. But in later work, Dewey also wrote about how art is this moving, transformative experience. He always called it an experience where Anne is in italics. And and Pugh and his colleagues have said, okay, well, that's really hard to Google. Let's come up with a different phrase. And they said that that transformative experience doesn't just happen when we encounter art. It can happen when we encounter big concepts in science and other topics. It happens with encounters in nature. And so let's characterize this and connect it back to Dewey's other work and, and move forward. So that's what I mean by a transformative experience. Yeah. And, and so, and, and you studied, of course, um, these kinds of experiences are um, fairly different from the ways that uh, teaching is often viewed as the transmission of, yeah. of knowledge. So to say a little bit about that distinction. Well, sure. So, you know, we, we, the language we use around learning is, you know, I'm giving you a tool to put in your toolbox or yeah. I'm, I'm delivering a lecture. And a lot of our language around teaching is almost like we're handing a thing to the students and we expect them to hang on to it, um, and it's their fault if they drop it. Um, whereas I think a lot of times learning is, is practicing habits of mind. Um, and so if you learn a, a fact and you don't get to connect it to anything else in your experience, it's going to be kind of a, well, Joe Reddish, the uh, physics education researcher, called it dead leaves. We, we hand our students a bunch of dead leaves, and they never understand how they're connected on the tree, that they're growing on the same branch, they're related to each other, and we don't explain what the rest of the tree is doing either. Um, so we yeah. don't want to just hand students dead leaves. We want them to understand the whole living tree of, of you know, of both uh, facts and practices that every field involves. Yeah, that's so. Yeah, that's so nice. And 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 actually, in in your in your work, the, of course, you were doing uh, scientific work. You were doing inquiry, and and you did this in the context of uh, uh, three different courses. You you looked at at these uh, transformative experiences, um, or whether there were transformative experiences, and to what degree. In three different courses, what were the courses, and why were they chosen? Sure. So. Um Three classes were a, a required fluid mechanics class. And the, um, the second was a, a tech elective called Flow Visualization that we alluded to, that we talked about a little earlier. And yeah. the third was a, um, the inaugural offering of a new design class called Aesthetics of Design. Yeah. Uh, these classes were chosen partially because Professor Hertzberg was teaching all three of them, and so that, that was a commonality. Um, so if you're going to try to hold something constant between different experiences, that was one way to do it. Yeah. Um, but the other was to really get at very different learning experiences. So fluid mechanics is a required class. Um, it has a very analytical approach. They have to use differential equations to solve certain things. That's fine. Uh, Flow visualization was far more about um, praxis, you know, go out and create these fluid flows, uh, take the images of them, explain what you did. Um, And aesthetics of design was different, again, in that everyone was building something. Um, And it was largely their own choice. So the idea between aesthetics of design and flow viz was try to enact some of the same teaching practices uh, in a very different content area and see if any of the same results 
came out of, of that transfer. Okay, and so, um, and, and, you, and you broke it down in different ways. One of the comparisons you did was the sort of the traditional fluid mechanics versus flow viz. What did you learn there? Well, I think choice is a huge part of all of this. Um, everybody has to take fluid mechanics if you're a mechanical yeah. engineering major. Um, so there's no reason to read ahead, learn what you're getting into. You know, they come into the first day of class, some of them come in cold, uh, not knowing anything about what they're going to learn because they, they don't have to prep um, because they didn't have to choose it. Whereas your tech collectives, mm. they, they spend time poring over those class descriptions. They ask their friends, they... They maybe even go talk to the professors before they take their tech electives because this is the chance when they have a choice. Um, and so students walk in the door, those other two classes, um, a little more motivated just because they had some agency in the, the choice of what class. Um, yeah. And I think that makes a big difference just from the get-go. Um, yeah. The other piece is, uh, you know, a lot of the students in Flovis create the fluids that they take images of. They, they figure out how to do that. And mm. um, the fluid mechanics class is a little packed with content. They don't yep. do a ton of demos or even um, experiments. So yep. the students don't get that same, same hands-on experience. And I, I think that also makes a difference. Yeah. Actually, I was, it was as you were talking about the um, required class, I remember uh, some work. And we're going to have Jeffrey Herman on the show in a few weeks, but about trying to create circumstances, even in required courses, where you get more intrinsic motivation. Um, and and some of what we did was to start with purpose, yeah. And say, well, okay, what's the? Why are you here? Why why does uh, we did it with a digital circuits course at first? Well, why why does an electrical engineer take a digital circuits course? Sort of. Disciplinary purpose, and why does society give a care about digital circuits? And then finally, the the big the big one was why do you care right. about digital circuits? And there was actually a pretty big difference in um, self reported motivation for the uh, in say that where we where we didn't do that. Where they, when you ask kids in a normal section, why are you here? They said because it's required, and 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 the attendant piece where you actually ask them about purpose. Um, and their purpose, then they had a story about it. Whatever that story was, it seemed to make a difference. I, I really think it does. And, uh, you know, one of the ways I try to get students to engage in the classes I teach now is that I list out the first day of class what the learning objectives for the course are, and the last one's blank. And mm. they have to tell me about three weeks in, once they've had some time to familiarize themselves yeah. with the goals of the course, um, what's your learning objective for the class? Nice. Yeah. And what are you going to do to demonstrate to me that you're making progress toward that goal? So basically, yeah. they write their own learning objective and assignment to go with it. Um, and I, there's several classes where I'm not sure how well I would motivate students without that. Well, and, and also, you just that's actually a kind of, a, not a separate point, but a related point. And if you're looking at things like self-determination theory, that they give them a choice as to how they, at least some choice in how they demonstrate mastery also yeah. um, in, is, is empowering and gives them agency. Definitely. Yeah. So, okay, well, what, anyway, so uh, you, you did these, um, you, you, um, you took both quantitative and qualitative uh, um, data in, in looking at these three classes. What else did you learn? 
Well, I, I learned that when students are motivated to, to study something, um, they, for example, in the fluids classes, they talked about something being interesting because it's complex or because it's hard. Um, sometimes we think that students just don't want to work uh, and they, they want things as simple as possible. Um, in fact, we talk about, you know, you're just trying to dumb down a class. Um, and I think that's, that's a, a huge misnomer because if you talk to students about the things they really geek out on, the things they really love, it's because they had a struggle and then they had the aha moment of understanding it. They don't want it to be super easy. They, they might say they do if you ask them straight up. But when you ask them after the fact, what do they really like about it? It's, oh, it was so complex. I really dug it. You know, when it clicked, I t- finally saw why it all worked together. Um, so I think that's an interesting point to say that students don't mind struggling. Um, well, that's of, clear. I what? mean, so yeah, that's completely. I mean, look at look at things like uh, design the design teams and competitions that they go in, and uh, and the heroics that they go through to to. Uh, develop their Baja cars and their concrete canoes mm-hmm. and all the crazy stuff. Of course, it's all outside the classroom and it's completely, um, well, it's not, it's not necessary. There's, there's a sense of competition and structure, but, but they've chosen to do it. And, and there's all kinds of struggle and problems to overcome and pride in, in ownership at the end of that. Yes, and there's a huge social component, not wanting to let your teammates down. And I think another thing I learned from looking at these three classes, one of the things Professor Hertzberg does really well is she gives, she tries to assign people to resource teams. Everyone's still creating their own individual projects or they're turning in individual products for the class. But your first line of defense if you're lost or you're confused is your team. And if you have trouble setting up an experiment or you're trying to build something and it's not working, the first people you turn to is your resource team. Um, and, and all of a sudden, there's this social component of not letting each other down yeah. or helping each other do things. Um, yeah. And frankly, that's what real engineers, re- real people in, you know, in the professional workplace have to do. Um, there's no ultimate answer from a professor. You're, you turn to your colleagues. So yeah. giving them pra- practice as in that format where you're not creating a team project, you're creating individual projects, I thought was, um, that's a great insight uh, that I intend to use in my own yeah teaching practice well the sense of connection and community being so important and and actually we we've de- for many years we've done everything that we can to squeeze it out but uh, getting that kind of getting that back in there seems to be important as you've said we need to take another break but i, I this is fascinating and i when we come back i want to um you, you want to talk about mark twain versus uh versus uh, Feynman. uh yep. so why don't we do that when we come back sounds good this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, uh, Kate Goodman. In the next uh, segment, it's uh, Twain versus Feynman. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. 
Contact him at deg at threejoy.com or browse the Three Joy website, www.threejoy.com today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are. In the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-472. 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome uh, back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is uh, sponsored by Big Beacon's. Uh uh, just uh, completed webinar. You can still see it. Uh, we it was held uh, Wednesday, uh, May tenth. But uh, go to bigbeacon.org uh, and and sign up for the uh, replay of four keys to ineffective educational change, or how to botch transformation without really trying. Learn the four mistakes that people make in modern change initiatives and how to overcome them. And learn how you can join Big Beacon's three communities of innovators today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up. Or write to me, Dave Goldberg, DEG, at BigBeacon.org to find out more. And and we're back with a fascinating conversation with Kate Goodman at uh, University of Colorado Denver uh, Inworks. And we're talking about transformative experiences in engineering uh, education. And, uh, Kate, you sent me a paper uh, contrasting um, Twain and Feynman. What's all that about? Well, I... I like to use this example because I think sometimes when I talk about the importance of emotional reaction to what we're teaching, um, I get sort of cross-eyed looks from my colleagues. So I like to use this example, and that is, um, it starts like this. Richard Feynman, famous physicist, tells a story about talking to an artist friend of his who shows him a flower, and the artist says, look, isn't it beautiful? And Feynman agrees. And then the artist says... Uh, you take your science and you take it apart and you make it a dull thing. But me, I'm the artist. I can really see how beautiful this is. And Feynman, of course, disagrees with that. <laughs> he says, no, with science, I can see the dance of the cells, what they're doing inside. Maybe I can look with the whole electromagnetic spectrum and see, see the flower, how the insects see it. Using science, I see more about the flower. It makes it more fascinating, more lovely, I don't see how it detracts, it only adds. And I think a lot of us would say that about our own field, whether we're you know, literary analysts, historians, economists, engineers, whatever our field is, we would say, no, when we analyze things, it just becomes more fascinating. That's, after all, why we have did the deep dive and got a PhD, right? 
Um, but there are people who react to learning more like the artist does. And rather than try to just say, no, trust me, they do, I like to point to an anecdote from Mark Twain. Uh, in his 1883 autobiography, A Life on the Mississippi, Twain has this example where he says, well, I, uh, when I first came to the river, it was beautiful. Every ripple was magical. Um, I loved looking at the river. But as I learned to do my job as a riverboat pilot, I learned, well, that kind of ripple means there's a sandbar that could take out my boat. And that nearly dead tree, it's only going to take one more thunderstorm for that to get knocked over and be a snag the next time I come through here. In other words, everything he noticed about the river required critical judgment, and it was about judging the danger to his boat, right? And Twain goes on to say, all the magic had gone out of the river. He was never able to look at it the same way again. Did he lose more or gain more by learning to do his craft? Hmm. Are we, when we design our assignments, driving our students right to where Twain is and leaving them there? Or... Are we still building in a mechanism whereby they can continue to be fascinated and stay in love with their topic? Which one are we doing? And I pose it that way because I think it varies by student and I think it varies by topic. But I think we do create classes sometimes, unwittingly, driving our students to this place where the only activity they ever do with our content is highly critical, very judgmental, and nothing but that. And and don't get me wrong, I want bridges that don't fall down and rockets that actually get where they're supposed to go. I I want the people who learn the practice of engineering to learn to be critical and judgmental, really. I want them to to make the right call for our safety and, and for the advancement of innovation. But there also has to be that moment of stepping back and going, wow. Wow, look at what we can do. Look at what, it, what the science of this is or what, what the engineering feat was or you know, being stunned at this historical discovery you made. Whatever the content is, whatever your field is, there's two ways to design that assignment. And one of them leaves open the possibility of a transformative experience of Feynman-like fascination. And the other one parks everybody with Twain and leaves them there. Yeah. And I love this. And of course, as you point out, the central difference in the two cases is, in many ways, the judgment, and the, the criticism, and the um, the 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 need to to be right and wrong. And as you say, there is a time for for that. It's important, but it just seems like the whole topic of education reform or transformation is rife with these. Uh, Barry Johnson uses the term polarities. Yeah. So, you know, is there, there are times where we unconditionally love our subject and then there are times when we're, we're critical. And, but, but sometimes we get stuck in a poll. We get, and so are we stuck in this criticism poll because that's important, um, that's professionally important. But at some point do we stop and, and say, well, where's the beauty and where's, where's the love comment? Yeah, when do we get to geek out about what we're doing? Um, to geek out, yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, I mean you, you were talking about the students at Olin um, that you, you cite in your book where they're, they, they're like, oh, we realized it was finally sort of our job. You really meant to us to go do this stuff, and so then they do, and they really dig in, and they, they do amazing things. Um, I think that's sort of what happened um, in a couple of the classes I looked at. Um, slow visualization... Um, has this interesting component that it's cross-listed with a fine arts photography and film class. 
Mm-hmm. So about 5 to 15%, depending on the, the semester, of the students in there are not engineers at all. And those students regularly geek out about <laughs> what picture they captured and, and what it looks like. Um, but they get highly technical as well. Hey, what were you doing using that, you know, film speed? And what's with your lighting? And yes, you know, they have their own level of critique and what counts as good. Um, and yet somehow, because it's more artistically inclined, they're also allowed to go back and geek out about it. Um, and, and be, be just, you know, aesthetically happy with what they created. And I, maybe that's the moment we skip, is we skip the moment of going, hey, I made a really elegant piece of code here. It does the same thing, but 15 lines fewer. Isn't that awesome? Or, you know, I, I was able to, to make this bridge design with less metal, and it still looks cool. You know, when do we stop and stand back and, and appreciate those kinds of aspects of our work? When do we praise that as professors? Um, I don't think we always do. Well, and 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 in in your dissertation, in your papers, and just now you use the term aesthetics. And I I was uh, working with a colleague, a TU Delft uh, philosopher, and and um, and he noticed that I was using the term beautiful a lot. And he said, you know, Dave, I I actually think you're serious about. He said, I thought that was an affectation, but I actually think that you think seriously about the aesthetics of the things in that approbation. And, and so talk, talk to me a little bit about what you've learned about aesthetics in your work. I think this is probably the, still the slipperiest part of what I was trying to study, um, because it is on some dimension a matter of taste. Um, the, the famous graphic artist, um, Milton Glaser, said that design is just the act of moving from a current state to a preferred one. Um, and sometimes I think when I say aesthetics, what I mean is giving students to move from a current state to a preferred one in terms of how they work, what they're working on, and what it looks like. Um, you know, there can be... Um, I think we're motivated by how things look and feel, uh, and that can come, that, that doesn't have to come from sort of a traditional definition of beauty. It can come from a, uh, a gross-out effect of the grotesque. It can come from an aesthetic of power. I mean, if you've ever listened to, you know, a military jet go over and kind of been in awe, that's what you're experiencing. So I, I hesitate to say that aesthetics just means beauty. I think it means that sort of visceral reaction to something um, that draws you closer to it. Um, that's the closest I can get to a definition today. Um, but giving students the choice of how they design the appearance of a product or um, emphasizing that, it, that, that the look and feel of something, um, the user experience of a product they design, for example, is going to matter in the long run. Um, and they should start with that as a component of what they do, not something they bolt on the exterior at the end. Um, I think that's an important part of, of design work. I think it should be a part of engineering design. Um, and, I, and I think it's a part of, of most fields if we really stopped and acknowledged it. Yeah. We've just got a few minutes um, left. And so um, maybe in, in the short, if... if so many of our listeners are interested in carrying practical lessons into the classroom based on what you've done so far. What, 
what would you, what kind of advice would you give, or what, what would you say would be um, something uh, a take home that that is useful right now for them? I would say always look for opportunities to give students agency. Um, give them give them choice, and 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 as much as possible, open ended choice, not a menu driven choice. Um, that's why I like assigning students to, to write their own learning objective, for example. Mm. You can also use those self-driven learning objectives to uh, organize teams and um, make sure that, for example, if someone's trying to learn to code better, you maybe put them on a team with a really good coder, but then emphasize that it's the team's job to help that person meet their learning objective. Yep. Um, I also, you know, so offering choice, I'm a fan of creating these resource teams where everyone's still producing their own individual homework assignments, whatever that is, but you have a a group of people you're expected to turn to and support and work with first. Um, And, 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 you know, modeling modeling that you're excited about your own field and what you're doing, modeling that you're continually learning. And trying new things and breaking things and failing and trying again. Um, make that behavior, make that mode of learning uh, commonplace. Make it part of the culture of your classroom. That's hard. That's easy to say and harder to do. Yeah. Just about a minute left. What, um, what uh, parting thought and, and how, can, how can our listeners get in touch with you and your work? Well, the easiest place to get in touch with me right now is um, through inworks.org. That's Inworks' uh, website. I'm all, you can also find me at Catherine Goodman on LinkedIn. Um, I'm still refurbishing my own personal professional website, so that's in the works. But um, you can find me at those other two locations. And my final thought is just that the idea that we, we keep calling upon our students uh, to be more creative and that has to be built into the way we expect them to act in our classes. And we have to give them that flexibility to be creative uh, in our classes, even the required ones, um, or they won't ever, they won't have practiced that enough to be creative after they graduate. Beautiful. Thanks, for, thanks so much for joining us, Kate, and I look forward to learning more about your work as it develops. Thank you so much, Dave. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Special thanks to our, our guest, Kate Goodman, uh, and, and InWorks. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com.
The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.